Welcome to the Donmar on Design podcast series. I'm Kate Tiernan, and this is our opportunity to talk in depth with some of the UK's leading theatre designers. Donmar on Design is a festival celebrating the power of design in theatre and the designers who make it happen. Today I'm speaking with theatre designer Christopher Aram about his work, past and present, and we're going to be going through some of these brilliant objects and images that we've got in front of us. But yeah, I guess it would be interesting to start by just asking you, as a designer, like what are some of the some of the images occupying your thoughts at the moment today? What are you, what are you thinking about? Um, I think what I was taught at college, and it stayed with me my entire life, and I think it's the best bit of advice you can give to anyone. I mean, a, a student, a designer, or anyone, is just always be conscious of your surroundings, always look around you, always look up as well as down. And it's you know, doubly true these days when everyone's got their face stuck into a mobile phone. But it's sort of, it's key to your understanding of the world to understand everything around you. So, you know, the nature of the, the building materials and, you know, the cup you're drinking out of and everything is designed, everything, you know, has been created by someone for someone else, even by, you know, by nature or whatever. So to bring something to the table... Um, you know, design-wise, you need to have experienced as much as of, of life as possible, sort of thing. So, and you can do it out of books. You can certainly do it on the internet, but nothing beats actually kind of going to to the real place. And so, you know, every every day, everything you do is part of that process and experience. Whether it's coming in on the tube and the feeling of claustrophobia on the tube, or being in an airless room, or you know, or being on top of a mountain. Um, so yeah, one constantly kind of thinks, how is it going to fuel in? And some jobs. Kind of you know very natural and logical and obvious, and other ones kind of don't you know don't have the same thing. I'm a, so yeah, at the moment I just I think about everything all the time. And what, when you when you get a new project, how do you begin? What's sort of like the beginning for you? Is it the text? Um, yeah, I'm the... I'm very much a text based designer, I guess. I mean that's what my training was, and I very much believe in supporting or sort of working on behalf of the writer um, to kind of illuminate their ideas. Um, it's not always the case. And certainly, obviously, you know, with sort of dead writers of Shakespeare's and stuff, you know, there's room for a lot of interpretation. But with co- contemporary live writers, you know, they clearly have an agenda when they write a piece. Um, but then having said that, I've done ballet where you, you know, you don't have a fixed narrative at all. So then it becomes a much more abstract kind of process. But I think you, you always start with kind of key ideas and kind of shapes and, I did the ballet set in Venice, and so you kind of go, you know, you, you've been to Venice, and so you, you kind of you know what Venice feels like, even if you're not going to put gondolas and stripy poles on stage. You know, the feeling of damp and the feeling of kind of decay and and claustrophobia and tightness and height and stuff like that. So, um, you know, you knew from the minute they said this is what we're doing, you kind of go, I have a sense of what it's going to be. It's going to be you know dark and crepuscular, as opposed to light and airy, and you know it's not set on the plains of America sort of thing. Um, so yeah, there's usually an idea. And generally speaking, whatever I kind of put down on paper initially, even if you go away from it in a process, you sort of end up back at the beginning. But just you just understand why you did that. You know, your gut instinct says, you know, it's it's this shape, this way, this whatever. But you kind of go, you've done on a done a journey to understand that when you get to the end of it. I think. Yeah, I mean, and you've had and got an incredible career. I couldn't quite list all of the, you know, the different... No, you shouldn't. Uh, <laughs> different, um, ...shows that you've made um, and the awards that you've got. 
and we were talking earlier about you know working across you know ballet opera theater you know theater in the fringe theater in broadway um working with disney these very different forms art forms really but at the core of it the design process and the work that you make i guess in your creative practice being similar across those different mm. forms but for you how um what is it like moving in and out of those those different places well it's what makes it interesting it's a, you know it's just slightly readjusting your trajectory each time in terms of what it's expected of you and what you know is required of you um so i think it's sort of you know it's the variety that makes it interesting job i mean every job's different anyway because you know it's a different play in a different place or a different musical or whatever um so you, you become an expert for a very short period of time on a very specific thing you know you do billy bard and you become an expert on napoleonic naval warfare and then you do frozen and you become an expert on norwegian myth and so you kind of the and then you kind of move on i couldn't tell you anything about cannons anymore but i could tell you about Norway um, and so you know that's the, the process you, you do Madame Butterfly and you start researching you know J- Japanese culture um, which is absolutely key to the job that's why it's so fascinating so thrilling to do so I think because you become you know you become interested in all sorts of things you didn't expect to um, and yeah. you know it doesn't always have some jobs are less interesting you know visually or hook wise than others but you know that's also to do with it's not you know any job is not just to do with the play it's to do with the people the place where it's at and, and all those external factors as well yeah. that influence what it what it is. And it's interesting talking about Disney, how, um, I mean, we're going to come on to our first object in a second, but how for a lot of people, D- Disney is their kind of childhood. Yeah. Um, you know, watching the films, going to the cinema, um, going to the shops, um, that is kind of uh, a huge part of a lot of people's um, childhood. And so... The first object we're going to talk about, um, or first kind of moment, relates to um, something that really influenced your kind of your upbringing, your education, your creative practice. Um, so, can you tell us a bit about what this uh, what this object is? Um, well, it's Star Wars um, in all its in many many forms. Um, I'm of a generation that saw it for the first time in a cinema as a child. And there was a time before Star Wars, there was a time that the 70s was beige and strike-filled and kind of, you know, a pretty wretched time. And then this film kind of exploded um, into, you know, into the world, into all our lives. And everything changed after that. It influenced culture for years to come after that and still does. Um, and it was just, it was mind-blowing to, to my 10-year-old self. I just, just hadn't seen anything like it, nor had anyone. Um, and I knew I wanted to be somehow part of it. You know, and it was interesting. I was old enough to know that I didn't want to be a spaceman, um, <laughs> although I had wanted to be a train driver at one point. Um, but I, I sort of, I, I knew I wanted to be somehow part of that process. And I thought making monsters would be the kind of the, the way in. I thought so I was interested in prosthetics and mask making and stuff like that. And that's why I kind of my my artwork at school at the time, you know, became heavily influenced by that. Um, and that's when I went to when I went to art college. I thought I was going to specialise in, in, in that sort of thing. Um, I, you know, I wasn't very good academically. I was, you know, not a bright kid. And I certainly didn't achieve in sports, stuff like that. But, you know, then I ended, I ended up doing all the things that you do when you don't do the sports and the things. So I did the school plays. I did, edited the school newspaper. I did the cartoons and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, um, my schooling led me away from what it was supposed to, but into a field that, you know, kind of worked for me. Um, and so I went to, to college with that in mind. But at college, I kind of... My 
taste varied and changed and I got more interested in the design aspects rather than the construction aspects so that's how I ended up being a, a designer and you said earlier about after watching Star Wars the train set was thrown away and um, became something else what yeah. did, did you sort of create your own small models and things when you were yeah I did um, I, had, I had a big train set in my in the bedroom which was you know all hillsides and mountains and, and um, viaducts and stuff like that and it became Moss Eisley Spaceport and the, tra- <laughs> the trains went away and I then built all these um, you know those kind of the, well, they're, they're the Berber dwellings from Tunisia I now know yeah. but at the time they were Moss Eisley Spaceport so all these kind of little buildings all covered in white plaster of Paris and then you know my hundreds of Star Wars action figures and my Millennium Falcon and my all those bits and pieces so it was yeah it was and but so yeah it was, it was literally the first models that I was making and you know done it ever since as a career so it's like yeah it, I mean it you've, just, you've done um, Frozen and been working with Disney so that must have been a bit of a fulfilment of a, of a dream a so cycle yeah to, exactly sort of life yeah to go out there and it was this we were saying it was this time last year um, um, yeah this time last year I was in Burbank visiting with the series because we used some of their illustrators and artists and animators to help with the backdrops to sort of you know to give it a we, we used a technology there's, there's a lot of video content in the in the show, but we're using it in a way that I hope doesn't feel like it's video content. We're using it as a way of the St James on Broadway where the show is at. It's very shallow, and um, we wanted a, a pack of um, cloths at the back of backdrops, um, but we couldn't fit them literally physically fit them in. So they're all done on this video wall, but as backdrops, as scenic backdrops. So they're not we're not doing a kind of video game fast tracking thing and putting through. It's, it's literally to do beautiful fairy tale backdrops and stuff so then they, they so I did the initial sketches and the artwork and then the, the animators did these kind of you know very beautiful um, uh, renderings for us and then they're, they're, wow. then they projected into this into this video screen so they would they would they would normally have been painted cloths it's just that there was no you know no opportunity no space in the package of the back there to do it um, which is why we used the that's why we went out to, to Burbank and, and yeah. saw the met them all that must have been an incredible project to work on. It was fantastic. Yeah. It was a it was a full on two years, and you know what has been now two years. Um, but it was very. We got involved quite late on the process. There've been several um, creative teams that had been kind of working on it and then had moved on. Um, and we were we were invited to. I don't. I'm quite sure what we, we were flown over. We were invited to come over. We were flown over and smuggled into. The back door of the Disney offices because no one, no one could know that you know what we were doing. Yeah. So we were sort of brought into a little airless office at the back, uh, Michael and myself, and um, met with the producers and we talked about it. We were there for a couple of days and people would sort of sneak into the room and sort of you know give us, bring us coffee and water and stuff like that, and look at us and go, "Who are you? What are you doing here?" But the bottom line was no one knew why we were there. And I actually had a couple of friends who work at Disney who I knew from beforehand who didn't know we were literally in the country, let alone in the building. So it was That's kind of amazing. crazy. Um, and at the end of those two days, we'd sort of, we'd somehow accepted the job and got the job. So um, we came back to England, um, pinching ourselves, and went down to Cornwall for a couple of days, uh, or a couple of weeks rather, and just filled sketchbook after sketchbook of ideas and riffing with kind of what it might be and how it could be, based on a book that had come so far but needed some work um, on doing, but as I alluded to earlier, it's like knowing the material very well, having seen the movie several times, and knowing that it was a great story with great characters, and that the music was so good. And they'd also written you know half a dozen new songs as well. There's more new material in it than okay. than just the songs in the thing. So 
knowing that we were onto a kind of strong starting point, it meant that we could just kind of go straight into it and kind of work it through. We went back to New York a couple of weeks later and Disney had sort of put together a studio for me at the top of the, um, the New Amsterdam, which is where their offices are on, yeah. on 42nd Street. Um, and it's in Ziegfeld's, but their offices are Ziegfeld's Follies Theatre. Um, and this room at the top of the building is, is his kind of rec room, his green room. So it hadn't been used for years and it was just sort of dirty old storeroom, but they'd actually kind of cleared it out and turned it into this fantastic, perfectly equipped studio with plotters and conference calling materials and books and desk space and comfy chairs and an orchid. And, yeah, it's like, <laughs> coffee, it was, yeah, coffee machines co- that worked. Absolutely, a coffee machine that worked as well, which is great. Um, and it's on the 10th floor, which is, the, the elevator only goes up to the 9th floor. So no one quite knows that there's this secret 10th floor sort of thing, which is kind of great. So we're kind of oh. squirreled away in the attic. And I had a team of, most it was eight people in there, but it kind of fluxed, came, came and went. But there were kind of two or three key people that kind of were the through line on it. Um, Tim and Frank particularly, and then Hillary and um, Stephen, were the key guys in queue. Uh, so they were the guys that kind of maintained the, the, the kind of through line while I was coming backwards and forwards sort of thing. And then, um, then they built me a, well, they didn't build me, but they they set up a costume studio as well. So then there was that another room in the building as well that we could do lay out all the fabrics and stuff like that. So yeah, they worked very hard to make it possible for us to do it because we basically had three months to design it and get it to the to the bid session so that we could start costing it. Um, so it was it was done in a very very quick rapid sort of turnaround, which is kind of you know in a way helpful because it meant there was no time to sit and question yourself. Um, we still managed to do a lot of demos and, and tryouts and stuff like that all the way through the process. So it was kind of, you know, it was good to at least be able to do that. Um, and we learned a lot kind of, you know, by doing the demos. We, you know, and because it's, it, everything has a long-term um, agenda at Disney. So yeah. Bob Iger, who's the head chairman of the company, you know, would come into the demos and check that they were acceptable for, you know, the standard of what they were looking for and stuff. And he, he had opinions about certain things nothing nothing negative he did he didn't he didn't stop us doing anything but he said you know you should look at that and maybe work on that sort of thing um which is great and it was really sort of helpful and you kind of think oh you know the chairman of disney's telling him wow it's kind of amazing um and were there moments on that when you thought back to your 10 year old self watching star wars and constantly i mean literally every day of it you know it's just like it was ridiculous because you kind of go why would why would you not it's like you know I've been a fan of Disney films all my life, yeah. as well as Star Wars, so it's like, you know, it's constantly... And that was the thing, when I first met Tom Schumacher, who's the head of Disney Theatrical, you know, we bonded over our love of the slightly more obscure movies, and, you know, I just, you know, I clearly connected or clicked at a certain point when we said, you know, what's your favourite movie? Um, I went Lilo and Stitch, and he went, oh, my God, that's... J- yeah, yeah, that's right, you know, and he still go, yeah, it is, yeah, that's the best one. It's not the obvious choice, you know, there are obviously the, the Lion Kings and Beauty and the Beast and stuff, which are great, yeah. but, you know, Lilo is this kind of amazing, small-scale, beautiful, artistic, watercolour-y kind of thing, obviously apart from Frozen, which is... <laughs> I don't know, I guess what I'm saying. Um, so, yeah, I just, you know, one knew that one was kind of, you know with good people and like I said you know I, I know people who've, I knew people who worked with the company while I was you know in New York before I was, before I was working with them as well so um, I knew they were good people mm. and, you know and there's, a, there's a love you know people who work for Disney love Disney that's sort of the point of it they, they, they're there because they want to be part of that thing and I think Disney have a good you know they have kind of weird reputation that's kind of like seen as kind of negative but I think there's nothing but good that they do really they, they employ lots of people they they work hard. They spend lots of money. They, you know, they're fantastic for the Broadway community because they, you know, they hire lots of people. They produce work that's successful, so they keep it running. And you know, they're they're good. They're good, good people in that respect. Mm. Um, and I've had nothing but a good time working with them. 
Sounds fun. And um, that takes us on to our second object, which tells us a little bit about your, again, about your creative practice, or um, but more through the lens of a set piece mm. um, for a, a show that you worked on. Um, and the show that we're going to talk about is Red. I remember reading Red, very specifically reading it, on the train down to Cornwall. Um, and there's a fantastic line in it. Um, I mean, it, it's about Rothko, but it's not really about Rothko. It's about mentorship. It's about who teaches who in any particular instance. And, you know, you could... There's a version where you could substitute Rothko for Pollock or thing, you know, but it's about a teacher and a pupil. And, you know, it's, it's a, very much about how I feel about my own career and when I was the pupil, when I was learning, and now, you know, then people want to learn from you sort of thing. But actually you learn as much from, you know, the people you're working with as, as they do from you. And it's very much a two-way stream. And that's the, the joy of the play, the trajectory of the play starts, you know. And it's also, it's also very Star Wars as well, because it's like, you know, the pupil becomes the master and, you know, things. So it's all very, <laughs> you know, Anakin and Obi-Wan. Um, but it hadn't really... Fixed on, fixated on that, but I just, yeah. I just remember the moment. There's a fantastic line in it where he says, "You know, you must respect the father, kill him, and then move on." And it's like you kind of go, "That's the great thing about it. You kind of you have to move forward in your practice, and yet you know you remain true to yourself." And Rothko rails against the the uh, the um other uh, people who come after him, the Warhols and stuff. Uh, but at the end of the day, the pop artists. But at the end of the day, you know, he was he was the one that you know, stamped on them. And the people before him so it's got it's a beautiful it's a beautiful play it's a beautiful metaphor but also the Rothko of it of it is something extraordinary as well I again seen those paintings all my life because that ironically have ended up in the tape and I remember going up to London and seeing them as a kid and being overwhelmed by them and kind of overawed by them because they're so as a kid they're unknowable they're just you know these huge intense canvases um so they were they were always part of my childhood as well and so when the when the play came about you kind of think there's you know there's, it's an instant connection like the was of frozen um and so then you start researching into it and then you look into all sorts of things you know rothko came to cornwall he had a relationship with the, the 50s artists in cornwall and you know found these interviews with him in local papers in cornwall we also went to the houston to the rothko chapel in houston the dominal collection and again you know another overwhelmingly extraordinary experience in terms of you know being in that room contained with those canvases also found his studio which you know where he actually painted these things which was on the Bowery down in you know which was obviously a very rough area back in the 50s but now it's a, you know all gentrified and what have you so there was all this kind of research plus working with John Logan who's this fantastic passionate writer who was fascinated by the process and he'd been he'd been in England he's a screenwriter as well he'd been in England working and had seen a lot of stuff at the Donmar and had written this play specifically for Michael to direct at the Dom, having seen the Pancanzas as well. So it was within the context of wanting to build this space, build this play for this space, um, and that intimacy. And obviously, you know, this, the whole deal with the play is that Rothko shuts the outside world out and boards up all the windows and hermetically seals himself in this world that he controls and contains, um, which is a kind of fantastic metaphor for theatre generally. And indeed, you know, John plays with the idea and turns the working lights on at one point to expose the artifice of it as well. So there's there's meta levels of everything, plus two fantastic parts for two fantastic actors. And obviously, you know, back in the day, it was um, Eddie and, and Fred. Um, and just recently, obviously, um, Alfred Enoch. Um, and we also did it with Jonathan Groff in LA. So, we, you know, we did it here at the Donmar, then we did it on the Broadway where it's a big old hit. Um, then we did it in LA, which is kind of amazing because I went to come 
don't work in LA, which is nice, yeah. with Jonathan Groff, who, yeah, just... There, there was a whole kind of frozen connection there, which is just too complicated and boring to go into. But it's it's just very funny that Jen Lee, who wrote Frozen and directed Frozen, is the partner of Alfred Molina, um, and they met while they were in LA because Jonathan Groff obviously plays Kristoff in the movie. Yeah. So there's this whole kind of connection, and that's how it all met up. So when Jen Lee, when when Disney approached Jen to say, look, we're, we're talking to Mike Brandage and Chris Rom about doing Frozen. You know, she said to her partner, Fred, you know, is this a good idea? And of course, Fred obviously said yes. I mean, thankfully said yes. But yeah, so it's, you know, there's lots of like nice kind of connected tissue that kind of That's links it all together. Yeah. Yeah. But also, I mean, the thing about Red is, you know, there's, it's dense with kind of um, themes and ideas. And we just, it was, it was a play that we just managed to, you know, he, he references, um, Art in the, in Rome and stuff like that, and we went and saw all those things as well. We we saw we used it as a proper stepping off point to really explore, you know, a, a world that you know John was kind of you know riffing and creating sort of thing. Um, and so our third kind of object is about a place uh, and um, a, a kind of more of a per, maybe a personal um, place that you that's significant to you, that you go to, to get inspiration or clarity. Um, uh, and so can you tell us a little bit about this this place? Um, well, Cornwall uh, is where my partner's from. And we have a place down there we've had for the last sort of 18 years or so. Um, and it's kind of proper escape from through what I grew up in Sussex on the south coast. I've always grown up near the sea anyway. Um, that's always been kind of key to part of my, my understanding of the world. Um, as has Michael. So... Um, when we can, we get down to Cornwall. It's a bit of a trek to get down there, but the point being that once you're down there, you are separate from the run, the rat race stuff. We have a place down there with a studio, actually a sort of bigger, better equipped studio than I've got in London. Um, so we can kind of work down there. Like I said, that's where we did the initial kind of push for um, Frozen. And indeed, we, you know, mid-process, we, we everyone came down, the, the light designer and um, video designer and the choreographer all came to, we had a kind of comp summit down in, down in Cornwall using that as a sort of you know, a base to, to work from just to go through all the material and stuff. So it's it's both a kind of a retreat and an inspiration at the same time. Um, it's where we keep all the books and all that sort of stuff, but we've got a big garden that we can kind of work mm -hmm. in as well. So, you know, it's it's fantastic place to be but it's also it's you know it's wild and feral in the one one hand you know up on the moors it's kind of rough and very bronte-esque and then suddenly by the coast you get palm trees and it's all sub subtropical so and then you've got the St Michael's Mount there in the middle of the bay which mm. is like some fantasy castle in the middle of you know, yeah. just poking out of the water so it's got a, got a magical kind of you know feeling too um, and you feel very close to um, you feel very close to nature there in a way that I think was, you know, helpful to even doing the frozen thing when you kind of, you know, you, when you go to Norway and you realise that, you know, there are less people living in the whole of Norway than living, you know, the borough of London yeah. and just how isolated it is and how gigantic those mountains are. And, you know, there's something about the kind of isolation that you get in Cornwall as well. And indeed doing the, the Martin Madonna plays, you know, all the, the Inish Martin, Inish Moore and stuff, you kind of go to the similar world of, you know, slight kind of isolation and stuff, which is kind of, absolutely part of it. And you have this huge artistic community down there as well. And these mm. amazing artists of which, you know, we know got to meet a load of them. Um, so that's kind of exciting. Mm. And Cornwall's got such a huge history, hasn't it, of, um, you know, St Ives artists and, um, you know, like we were talking about Rothko and yeah. um, Barbara Hepworth and Henry Moore and that yeah. whole sort of, I think there's a real reason why that it's such a draw it's, historically it's, and yeah. today for... I mean, it's fascinating because it is, 
it's the light at some level, which is different from the rest of the country that, that I shot about. But it's also kind of grey and overcast a lot of times. But it is, you know, surrounded by water basically because obviously we're right down the far end, um, pretty much as far as you can go. So that you know, you you constantly expose to different weather than you are further up country, um, which tends to be sort of damp quite a lot. Um, but you know, it's good for the plants. So, but it is it is a very you know, a very unique and very special place. And I say because Michael's grew up there, so he has a you know massive connection with it, and yeah. I increasingly find myself, you know, kind of connected to it as well, um, in a good way. And when you're in London, are there uh, places that you go to 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 kind of get this kind of snapshot of the same the same? No, L- London's experience is different, deliberately so. And New York is too. So like you know, I have a you know a very different life in New York than I do in London. I have a very different London life to to um, Cornwall, um, and that's good. I think that's that's kind of you know the diversity makes it. Yeah, exciting, and you, yeah. Bring, you bring you know calm from Cornwall to London, and then you take energy from New York to London, and you know it's all yeah. trades itself against each other. Um, but you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily want to be in any one place. I mean, I love New York, I love it to death, and I would live there like a shot. <laughs> yes. Except that whenever I go, I go for work, and I'm busy, and I've, you know, I've never been unemployed in New York and looking for work and all that sort of stuff. You know, I've only ever been there when it's been working for me so, uh, yeah. full on and stuff so it's kind of like, I don't know whether New York be as much fun as it, as it is when I'm you know mm. just on top of the game sort of thing so yeah, yeah and we had, a, we had an apartment there when we were working full time over there which is beautiful but then you know not paid for by us so it's like yeah it's but you go it was a luxury that you wouldn't be able to afford if you weren't you know yeah currently working yeah yeah and as a designer do you have your own studio or do you work from home where do you tend to i've always worked from home it has to be said I've, you know out of absolutely out of necessity initially because i couldn't possibly afford a studio um even back in the day so yeah it was you know converted to spare bedroom and it's it's sort of never changed it's it's great i've got a skylight um big skylight over the Thing. So it's, good. it's got lots of light that comes in from both sides all day, and it's sort of it, it's open plan the, the flat. So it's sort of it, it, it's not a kind of tiny little condensed room. It's got enough space, and I've done you know the Olivier out of there. I've done the Met out of there. <laughs> you know, sort of like it, it's it's not huge, but we managed somehow to get all these shows um, done. And um, yeah, I think I think eight was the most people I had in there at any one point. It was a bit of a crowd then, but it was like you know <laughs> one of those big pushes towards the final end. <laughs> Cool. And and do you prefer because um, we're talking about obviously um, with Frozen that you had a dedicated studio that you were yeah. kind of working out of and um, obviously it's quite a luxury for theatres to be able to provide that yeah. you know space for designers. Um, what 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 are your thoughts about it? Do you think it's um, it kind of helps the creative process or actually having somewhere that's kind of separate and apart from? Um, the I, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I always used to think. I mean, certainly because I work with my partner, it means that working at home means that he has a constant daily update on the on the work. It's you know, it's not like working with a, design, a director who you meet you know twice in a process sort of thing because they're all too busy. You know, every day Mike would come home and would see how much we'd done and say, "What have you done today?" <laughs> and done any work. Um, but it means that the process is organic and you, you mm. see it as it kind of works through. And I think that was really helpful. Um, but it also means that you know you'd have other people coming in and out of your house all day, so that's you know, potentially less helpful. Mm. Um, but I ultimately really like that process. I, I think it's great. Since you know, and since this frozen process, you know, we haven't done a show back in England, so I, that's needed studio time because obviously the, the stuff was all done beforehand. Um, so yeah, it'd be interesting to see going forward 
mm. you know, with a one would sort of start looking at maybe moving out of the studio. But we're trying to spend more time down in Cornwall, and the studio down there is bigger and you know, easier to work in, so maybe it'll happen down there as well. Mm. And the process is different now as well in terms of you know model making stuff. But I, I always benefited from um, working with designers. You know, I was very lucky. I worked with Ian McNeil. Um, and Anthony Ward, Mark Thompson, and Paul Farnsworth when I was a you know was a assistant, which was a fantastic diverse grounding in all sorts of different styles and, and tastes and stuff like that, um, yeah. and working with them in the studio and learning from them and being part of their gang and, and you know going out and stuff was fantastic and I, that's something I'm very keen to pay forward with my own you know people yeah. I work with as well that there isn't a job, it's a vocation, it's something that you know part of the education of it is to, to well, part, part of the work of it is an education as well as just churning out models and, and drawings and stuff that you should absolutely be passing it on. Hence, back to the red yeah. thing about yeah. you know, tutor, mentorship and tutorship and stuff like that. You know, and it's, it's, education is, you know, the most important thing, being observant, being, you know, not. No one's got, no one's got a right to do anything. They, you know, they, they have to do it because they are able but want to and can that's the thing it's like no no one no one's right no one's wrong it's like this this work is absolutely subjective but that it's better by being you know intelligent it's better by being educated about it that's the thing so yeah and that's interesting because I was going to ask you about um obviously Michael's a key collaborator of yours yeah um but also over your career sort of like I was going to ask who were some of the other kind of key influences or collaborators and obviously there's the the directors that you've worked yeah. really closely with but I wondered if there were any other people along the way that were sort of significant in um, either your creative process or oh yeah sort of absolutely trajectory. I mean it, it's it's a massive collaboration all, all, all theatre is anyway and we're none of us an island entire of ourselves sort of thing so that you're constantly, you know, particularly lighting designers, obviously, are kind of the obvious key ones. Sound designers are equally as important. So, obviously, Neil Alston and Adam Cork, who we've worked with lots, and Paulie Constable as kind of the key sort of triumvirate of, of collaborators at that level. Um, but also the costume supervisors who look all around, and um, so Mary Charlton, Stephanie Arditti, who sadly died last this year, my goodness, still only this year. Um, but she, worked, she and I worked together on many, many projects, including Wolf Hall and stuff. Richard Nutborn, the scenic artist, who's you know done all my physical work, uh, and Graham and Nigel Bowwoods, who are absolutely you know again key to key to my process in terms of understanding the nature of my taste and the physicality of my work and you know the, the structure and texture and stuff like that. Um, I'm very much a kind of painterly designer, and I love physicality and I love texture. So it's like you know these are key collaborators who understand that. Um, and so you don't, I don't have to go through a process of trying to explain, which I, ironically I did on Frozen with a whole bunch of new collaborators about you know how broken down a broken down piece of wood can be. It's not just looking at it going you're broken. It's like you know attacking it with chainsaws and chains and stuff to make sure that it's properly kind of manky and old looking. Um, and it was a that was fascinating doing it with the Americans because it's a process they're not used to, but they kind of got quite excited and quite into it as well. And it was like, there was a kind of a breakthrough moment when they kind of went, you mean like this? I'm like, yep, that's exactly what I mean. Like, oh, well, I can do that. And it's like, okay, great. Yeah. We we're, we're obviously, we're in the Donmar at the moment, and this is a building that you have occupied and been a part of. Um, but interestingly, not this, Dryden Street happened after, Yes. literally just after left. They bought it, um, but it just hadn't been, Appointed yet? I mean, I've been here a couple of times, but I started. Um, I was Anthony Ward's assistant on Assassins, so I was here literally at the very beginning of Sam's 
Tanya when it was a much smaller operation. It was all, all out of um, the building itself. Um, it was Sam Caro and Anne McNulty, Nick Frankfort, who's now Michael's um, producing partner at MGC, but he was back then, he was the company manager of the Dunmore Company. And it was a much smaller operation, so that everyone involved it was very much hands-on. Don Fraser and all the great people. Mm. Um, so I kind of feel like I have a kind of foot in the history of this place right yeah. from the word go. And I did a couple of other shows as an assistant. And then I was lucky enough to get a get a designing gig on a player, Joe Pennell player called The Bullet, uh, directed by Dominic Cook, which is great. But it was, it was a kind of suburban house, so it wasn't kind of very interesting to design necessarily. Um, but then Michael got his first gig here as well. I got, we did good. Um, and that was my first, you know, show with him here. Uh, and it was the first time we kind of properly exploit the unique kind of properties of the space, the kind of the dynamic, the the the, the, the pit kind of process where you kind of surround it. And I was talking to um, a designer recently about, you know, you, you make a model of this building and you sit looking at it on a table and you kind of think, but no one, no one experiences it like that. You are in the space. Yeah. You're in a way that I just don't feel about any other thing. You're so in the space. You are looking up into it and around it and through it. You're never looking straight at it. You know, half the audience is sitting on the sides, half the audience is sitting above it looking down. So it's very much a case that you can't pictorially place it mm. in a kind of proscenium sense. You have to be part of that world. And, you know, we found that by stripping it out, it was kind of the, the, the easiest sort of way forward. So that was kind of a style choice that we did for a long time through Caligula and all those kind of early early shows. And you do a big complicated show like Privates on Parade and suddenly you need rickshaws and you need, you know, fantasy backdrops and jungles and machine gun stuff to do. Yeah, and then you realise you can do anything in that space. That's what's so wonderful about it. Um, and then you start exploring how you can convert, you can change it, you can open it up and you can move things around. And we made a streetcar and we kind of built an entire New Orleans gunner gallery around the top and it was something that was very much, you know, you felt that you were very much in that heat and that's why that was Neil Austin again being kind of brilliant with the, the lighting all through shutters and fans and gauzy curtains and like um, parade when you're doing it and that was you know that also said we continue the balustrades around the, mm. the the top and stuff so you got you know you, you become and I think the, the ultimate expression of that was when we did spelling bee and you know we literally ripped it all out and converted the whole thing into a, a school gymnasium yeah. which is kind of all the way through the front of the house as well it's amazing kind of ambitious kind of take on it was absolutely and I love that show so much it's just so much fun to do it was so much fun it was just so great and just you know every bit of it every aspect of it kind of inventing the school logo and then using that all over the place and you know it's just every bit of it was just so challenging and creative and the show itself is so good and the music's so great I love that show so much Um, and that was actually the last thing I did here I don't know I never counted how many I did but it was a lot um but it's just you know they they all they all have their fantastic thing. Also, because we did the shows outside here as well, we did the Wyndham season, um, Guys and Dolls is another one. So you know there's lots of shows that kind of you know had a genesis in this building and then you know became bigger and and moved out as well, sort of thing. So that was kind of you know exciting to have such an intimate understanding architecturally and spatially of a building. Yeah, from right like you said the kind of early days all yeah. the way through must be quite a, quite unique for a designer to build that kind of relationship with a theatre or it's it's weird isn't it it's because I mean obviously before the Donmar Michael ran the Sheffield Crucible and I did a lot of work up there as well on another very unique stage a very big stage but a very new, and very beautiful but another thrust stage so 
I did, I did a long time up there, and you know, one was never a uh, in-house designer, but you just ended up doing, you know, some, a lot of work. And then same, similarly down here, um, and then we consequently, subsequently, subsequently, been working primarily in the kind of triangle um, down here with the Nell Coward, the Wyndhams, and the Garrick. So it's kind of like once then suddenly become part of that little world too. So you you end up becoming familiar with places without by default you know you, you don't get hired to be the in-house person the, those positions don't really exist anymore um, um, but you know you, you end up understanding and learning about a place by default because you do lots of work there and of course the more you do the better you understand the space and how, how you can behave with it and how it responds and how an audience responds and how that connection is made and that's you know the key to the Dolmar success is absolute the, the audience interaction with the performance with 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 the piece because you are so intimate and yet you don't feel you're on top of it and I, I saw something the other day in a, a smaller French theater where I just like literally screaming to get out because it was so so sitting on the stage with it and I just couldn't you know I couldn't breathe because they were so in your face with the Doma has that unique ability to kind of feel both proper and positioned but also intimate and in, in the room sort of thing so can't, can't beat it. Cannot beat, beat it. it. And looking back again, what would your advice be to your younger self, kind of pre, pre Donmar, sort of back when you were studying or assisting and working in the fringe? Um, what would what would your advice be to yourself? It's weird, isn't it? Because I sort of I don't quite know. Because I thought I kind of muddled my way through pretty much. I mean, you know it you got to keep going, but I did keep going, so it's not like I quit, although, you know, you're very poor for a very, very long time, and, you know, there was no money to be made in the early days, and you, you sort of, like, you know, it's late late nights and dirty trousers and, you know, just, like, ugh, more pain calls and stuff. But ultimately, you know, the rewards of it are just so great because, you know, you see a great piece of work. You know, I just remember seeing King Lear up at the RSC and the first time I'd really properly kind of engaged with it as a play and it just blew my mind and you kind of think, you know, and I want that to happen for someone somewhere, you know. And that's the, the privilege of Frozen. You know, a lot of people are going to be seeing their first ever show, and it'll be Frozen because their kids are being taken by their parents and mm. stuff. You can't So you want to make sure that their experience of it is as thrilling and exciting as you know as, as it can be, mm. um, because you know there are in every audience there will be someone seeing a play for the first time, and so it's kind of you know, it's important. That's it's tr- the transcending nature of theatre when it when it works, and it you know and I can count it on a single hand, um, but you know when it does work, it's just amazing. You know, Spring Awakening, American Idiot, just brilliant, brilliant plays, that, you know, musicals and stuff. Uh, that King Lear, The Normal Heart. I mean, just sort of things that just go wow that get right deep inside you. But you know, I see something you know, most weeks, so a lot of them don't get inside you. But that's good because mm. you know they can't all. Mm. Yeah, but I hope that you know something I've done will have worked for someone somewhere mm. at one point sort of thing, whether it's Red or Frozen or you know, Parade or any of the good stuff. We were talking earlier the about mentor and Red the and the mentor and the mentee. And obviously there's going to be a lot of people listening to this who are starting out in their career, um, studying theatre design yeah. or kind of early on. And, and they might be thinking that's a model that, they'd really like to to pursue is mm. is finding a, a mentor what would your advice be both for them but also for people listening who are uh, really well established in their career and maybe thinking about that um kind of offering that back mm-hmm. yeah I, th- I mean 
I think you've just got to work. That's the thing. You've got to you've got to be knowledgeable and you've got to work. You've got to know about your form, about your art. There's no point in wanting to be a designer because you can draw. It's like, you know, you need to go to the theatre, you need to read, you need to experience the world, you need to bring something to the table, not just think that the table's there for you sort of thing. So I think that's the key to getting on as a, you know, as when you're starting out. It's, you know, you need to know what's happening theatrically in the world. You need to see every show, even ones you don't want to see. You need to see what's, what's working, what's not working for you and society and, you know, for, for the audience and stuff like that. So go and see a successful show, go and see an unsuccessful show. You might like the unsuccessful show. And, you know. um, and the whole money thing is not an excuse. There are all sorts of ways, there are all sorts of schemes, whether it's here or, you know, Michael's thing, the £10 seats, and they're not bad seats, you know, but and there are 10,000 of them on, on every run of a show. You kind of say, there is always a way to see a show. Um, so, you know, there is no excuse for not, you know, and I, I think it would be, inappropriate to even approach someone about without having seen some of their work and to know what they're about and stuff like that just because you you know just because you know of someone doesn't mean you know that's the right thing for you so yeah you've got to absolutely um you know 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 about your about your art as well as your craft um and then from the other side of it yeah just sort of i think it's important that you know people give back as well that's the thing i mean that's what we're trying to do with the charity with the mgc futures charity is to encourage you know and to be able to give back a bit um, with both you know sort of bursaries and mentorship and 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 sort of you know opportunities like that, um, yeah, I think you know that's the only thing you can do because you've got to encourage new audiences. You've got to you know encourage the flow of information communication. Um, that's it. Thanks so much, Christopher. It's been really wonderful talking to you and going through um, some some real kind of highlights of your work and. Um, and, and, and giving us that insight. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the Donmar on Design podcast series. Visit donmarwarehouse.com to find more podcasts with our world-class theatre makers.